in between the great church celebrations of Easter and Pentecost comes a little marked but significant holy day, Ascension. You did really well on that quiz, by the way. Good job. But if you never heard of Ascension, if that didn't come to you right away, just pop into your head, that's all right. Don't worry, you're not alone. Part of the problem is that Ascension comes 40 days after Easter, which means that it always falls on a Thursday. Anybody in church on Thursday this week? Nah, me neither. <laughs> the other problem is that it lifts up an event that we seldom hear about, the ascension of the risen Christ into heaven. I have to admit that the idea of Jesus physically ascending into the sky is a little hard to swallow. While people in that day believed that the sky was a physical dome that covered the world and held back the waters of chaos both above and below the earth, we know the sky to be an optical illusion caused by our atmosphere. They believed that the ascending Christ would pass through that dome and eventually come to heaven, but our science tells us, well, that he would just be lost in the vast reaches of space. Yet a multitude of creeds, including the one that is arguably the most well-known, the Apostles' Creed, make this claim. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, thought this holy day to be so important that when he edited the church's liturgical calendar, the Church of England's liturgical calendar, so that he could send it over to the United States, the new United States, Ascension was one of only three non-Sunday observances that he retained. By the way, the other two were Good Friday and Christmas Day. Apparently, Monday, Thursday didn't make the cut. The New Testament only refers to Jesus' ascension in a few places. The theology of Jesus' ascension is crucial to John's gospel, and the long ending that is tagged onto Mark's gospel briefly alludes to it. But it is only in the two-volume set of Luke and Acts, written for the benefit of someone named Theophilus, or God-lover, that we are given the details of this event, an experience that not only gives us a glimpse of glory, but also inaugurates the beginning of the church. Acts begins where Luke leaves off, anchoring everything that follows in the central truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In this first chapter, we learn that after his resurrection, Jesus spent time with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. Perhaps this is what led them to ask him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, is this the time when you will finally expel the Roman enemy from our land and restore Israel to greatness? Given the state of our world today, we might well ask a similar question. I know that there are certainly moments when I wish that God would act and that a returning Christ would end violence and hatred and bring peace and wholeness to our world. Lord, is this the time? I think Jesus' answer would be the same for us as it was then. It is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Leave these matters to God, he tells us, them and us. And then he redirects the disciples to the work that he has for them 
and for us in the meantime. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. With these words, Jesus commissions his disciples to be apostles, those who are sent. They are to share their experiences, teaching others all that Jesus taught them, and testifying by word and deed to the truth of God's grace and love in Christ. They will begin this work in Jerusalem, among their own people, but their mission will not stop there. Instead, they are to offer their witness everywhere, to the ends of the earth. Jesus' words point to the trajectory of the book of Acts in which the gospel will travel from Jerusalem to Rome, the ends of the earth in those days. But his words are not just for these newly appointed apostles. They are for us as well. For we too are called to be witnesses, to give faithful testimony through our words and actions to the truth of Jesus Christ, the love and grace of God and the promise and presence of God's kingdom to each other and to the communities in which we live and worship and work, and beyond that, to the ends of the earth. If that last thought seems impossible, think of the connections that we have within the United Methodist Church. Think of the power of social media. Think of the way our mission giving helps people we will never see Think of our ability to influence the work of our government with our phone calls, our emails and letters, and our votes. All these are means by which we act as Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth indeed. Fortunately, those whom Jesus calls to be his witnesses are not expected to handle uh, this work on their own. It's a pretty intimidating task. Instead, Jesus tells the disciples that they are to wait for the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. His words send us back to the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke in which John describes the coming Messiah as one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Spirit, which descended upon Jesus during his own baptism, will give the disciples the assurance of his Jesus' ongoing presence authorize them to take up his work and ensure the continuity of that work by continuing to teach and guide them. And more. Jesus tells the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. The Greek word for power is similar to the English word for dynamic, and it denotes a vigorous, energetic force that will be evident to all who perceive it. Through the Spirit, the disciples will find themselves capable of more than they ever imagined. They will have the ability to inspire others, to do miracles, and to demonstrate effective dynamic leadership. And still more. For it is the Spirit who will give them the vision to fulfill Jesus' command to the fullest. Michael Joseph Brown writes, The outpouring of the Holy Spirit will equip the disciples to move beyond their narrow confines and narrow vision, Jerusalem and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, into a large, diverse world telling of God's deeds of power. 
This is a promise for us too. We too are baptized by water and the Spirit, and through that same Spirit, we are capable of more than we ever can imagine. If you doubt that, think about what our church has been up to in recent months. Helping the homeless through family promise, feeding the hungry through case and shared bread, healing the sick through our Easter offering for the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, enriching the lives of children and youth through TOTS and Sunday School and our youth group and so many other ways. I could go on and on. We are helping to change lives. And still, the Spirit calls us to leave our comfortable pews and familiar traditions and to expand our vision of what we can and should be doing. How? The answer may lie in the first task that Jesus gives the disciples. He tells them that they are to return to Jerusalem to pray and to wait for this promise to be fulfilled. Jesus knew they would need time to adjust to his absence and to prepare themselves for a future without him by their side. He'd been with them for three years. They counted on him. that He would be with them, at least physically, no longer. He knew that they needed to practice listening and patience, gathering strength for the difficult work ahead. He knew that they needed to learn to trust in God's timing, and so he told them, wait for it. Wait for it. And he says the same thing to us. Anybody here good at waiting? Oh, I see one person with their hand up. Good for you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Most of us have a little trouble with this idea of waiting. As Bishop William Willimon writes, waiting, an onerous burden for us computerized and technically impatient moderns who live in an age of instant everything, is one of the tough tasks of the church. Our waiting implies that things which need doing are beyond our ability to accomplish solely by our own efforts, our programs, and our crusades. Some other power is needed, therefore the church waits and prays. There are indeed times when we need to be passive instead of active, to sit in silence, offering prayer and studying God's word. There are moments when we need to offer our plans and our questions, our hopes and our fears to the grace of God, and trusting in God in that grace, yield ourselves to that will. To God's will. The disciples take Jesus' words to heart after being nudged by a couple of angels, and they return to Jerusalem. But they don't wait separately, each in his own home. On the contrary, they gather together and devote themselves to prayer, along with the women who supported Jesus in life and cared for him in death, and to our surprise, along with Jesus' brother, and Mary, his mother. Theirs is the first congregation in the history of the church, but certainly not the last. Christianity is not meant to be a solitary religion. We need each other's support. We need each other's love and strength and witness. We need to share our faith journeys with each other. Perhaps most of all, we need to follow that example of that first congregation and pray in active expectation and faith, even now, before we act.
before we move, before we go out to the ends of the earth. Wait for it, Jesus told the disciples, and then he disappeared into the sky. As they stood there staring at the sky and straining to see him, they must have felt bereft, even abandoned. On Thursday, which was Ascension Day, I joined friends at a community breakfast on the grounds of St. Sophia's Orthodox Cathedral in, the, in Los Angeles. How many of you have been to St. Sophia's? A few of you. If you've been there, you know it is stunning. <laughs> it's a huge sanctuary, and every inch of it is covered with gold and crystal, and it's just amazing. So after this breakfast, I walked over to the sanctuary just to look at it, to see if I could get in and look at it. And the doors were open. I went in, and I knew what I wanted to see most of all. I'd been there once before, a long time ago, and I knew what I wanted to look at most of all. I wanted to see the great dome with this great portrait of the risen Christ, which the Orthodox call the Pan Pantocrator. As it happened, I was in alone in the sanctuary at that time. The breakfast hadn't quite gotten out yet. And I when I looked up at that dome, I was absolutely stunned. There was Christ. I mean, you have to imagine a dome at least as big as this space up here, only higher, much higher. And there was Christ one hand grasping a Bible and the other hand raised in blessing. Christ looks directly down. And I was standing right under him, so it looked as if his eyes were looking directly into mine. His face was solemn. And yet I felt as I looked at him that he looked back at me with a deep love. A deep and abiding love. And though the dome was high above me, I felt very close to Christ in that moment. Jesus did not abandon his disciples or us when he ascended. We have his promise that he will return. And in the meantime, he has given us a purpose, a community, and his presence in the Holy Spirit. And more. As the Apostles' Creed indicates, the early church believed that Jesus ascended to a heavenly throne at the right hand of God. But the ascension is not so much about a change in location as it is a change in status, an elevation in status. It affirms that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is Lord, and had that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, to quote Matthew 28. Having said that, I like the way Reverend Dr. James B. Lermer describes the ascension. He writes, God did a grand and new thing, a powerful thing in the resurrection of Jesus, and God sealed it in the ascent of Jesus to God's own heart, center and heart, to God's own center and heart. And this is is perhaps the ultimate promise of the ascension event, that someday we too will follow Christ and ascend into God's own center and heart and know 
that amazing love in every part of our being. Let us wait for that, for that indeed, in faith and hope, even as we joyfully pray and witness together to the glory of God. Alleluia. Amen. Amen.